0: When David Upton co-founded Common Good Solutions in 2012, he didn't come armed with an in-depth, detailed strategic plan. But there was a mission, and it was a powerful one. See the need, try to fill the need, is how David describes it. Over the years, the big-picture mission would inspire the Halifax-based social enterprise to help dozens of purpose-led businesses make meaningful impact in their communities. And it's given Common Good Solutions and its impassioned CEO a leadership role in the social enterprise landscape in Canada and beyond. David Upton recently retired from Common Good Solutions. So on this special podcast, we ask David to look back on his impactful journey so far and to look forward to the needs he still wants to fill on the road ahead. Welcome to In the Business of Change, where we speak with social entrepreneurs impacting their communities and the world. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum, publisher and editor-in-chief of Sea change magazine. As many of you know, I'm also the author of a book by the same name, profiling over 70 social entrepreneurs around the world and their lessons learned. Well, it just so happens that we're having a big book giveaway this month. All you have to do is share this podcast episode and tag C-Change to be eligible to win a copy. We'll announce the winners next month. And now, back to our podcast. In our conversation, David Upton examines the challenges that Common Good Solutions was designed to tackle and the tools they adopted to make change. He shares the many ways in which Common Good Solutions, otherwise known as CGS, walk the talk, a point of deserved pride. We discuss the role of social finance in meeting societal challenges. And we talk about his role in helping develop recommendations for Canada's social innovation and social finance strategy, including where that initiative sits today. Finally, David offers up some words of wisdom from a distinguished career in social enterprise and some hopeful thoughts for the next generation.
1: Uh, Andy Horsnell a friend of mine, and he and I co-founded the business out of rural Nova Scotia, Kingsport, which is where I'm right sitting right now. It's about an hour and a half out of Halifax on the on the Minas Basin, uh, okay. the Bay of Fundy. And I, <clears throat> I didn't start this business till I was 57. And I just decided that I didn't want to do anything anymore that I didn't feel like doing. And so I didn't feel like helping another business to get a loan or to build up their marketing plan so they could just make more money. I'm not opposed to people making money I think businesses need to make money, but I didn't feel like doing that. And um, I'd had an experience in the early 90s. I worked in the Arctic in an isolated community up in the archipelago uh, on King Whale Island. And I worked with a bunch of artists and we set up a business, all of these Inuit s- uh, carvers, and uh, started selling art into the South directly, bypassing the Hudson's Bay and uh, the cooperative. And they'd made a lot more money. Mm. And so I had this sort of epiphany in this 1991, maybe 90, that wow, oh, you know, you can really run a business that makes money. And it's, it's like, it's like, like little light bulbs went off in my head <laughs> and, uh, and it stuck with me. And so, you know, as often as I could over the years, I kind of worked in that area. But once I got to, you know, the late, uh, uh 2000s, I just went, you know what, I'm only going to do this. And to our great surprise, we kind of created a market niche. Mm-hmm. And, um, the result being that we punch above our weight class, I guess. Is that in, <laughs> like in terms of people's knowledge of the company? Right. It's because we were so connected to the emergence of this kind of work, I think. And so as a result, organizations like the University of Pennsylvania use our content for their couple of their incubators. Australian Center for Rural Entrepreneurship use our training content to train wow. rural entrepreneurs in Good Australia. Like it's like it's, like it's sort of this weird, yeah. and 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 that was not honest to God. That was like yeah, you know, we had a deep, well thought out strategy to
0: we didn't it just sort it just, of organically developed that way
1: it it did and so you know uh it's probably you know i probably you know dissing myself here a little bit but it, this was a lot of this was we look up we our goal was to fill gaps in the sector as the sector tried to develop so we were willing to take a shot at anything if it was going to make an improvement and right. because we did we ended up doing a bunch of different sorts of things so the common approach um which is run out of a University of Ottawa and they're doing big impact measurement things. Well, they use all of our training for sector organizations uh, as an example. You know, it's like this kind of weird, so we're in impact measurement. We uh, do lots of procurement work. We do social finance work, but we're really just a capacity building organization. That's what I was gonna
0: say, right, okay.
1: So for us, it's been see a need, try to fill the need. And um, to a great degree, we've been able to, if nothing else, animate the conversation that goes on about impact business in general. And um with the new management in place with Chelsea and Michelle, the 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 business is going to become a little bit more business like and we'll a whole lot more focused on measuring the outcomes that we achieve. So Got I it. think we're just going to make it stronger.
0: And even to take a further step back, what was your original mission? Why did you why did you even start the organizations, common good solutions? What what inspired that?
1: So the so you know I could try to Using my hands, make a graphic representation. This should be good
0: on a podcast. I, I <laughs> an audio can, podcast, yes. <laughs> I know. But, but
1: if you imagine the economy as a pipeline, so there's the traditional nonprofit sector, and they create in Canada somewhere in the seven, eight percent of GDP is created by the nonprofit sector and the work that they do.
0: Right.
1: And the balance or a big chunk of the balance is created by business. What we were seeing and what we've seen accelerate is this growing demand on both sides of that pipeline for the nonprofit world to become just a little less help me. We're doing God's work and a little bit more focused on sustainability, financial sustainability, and a whole lot of pressure on the business community to not be such assholes. Right. And so, and so I have friends on both sides of this pipe, people I admire and respect. And, and I think what we did was try to model common good solutions as a community interest company to sit right in the middle of that space and model behavior that most nonprofits don't model and most for-profits don't model. So right. we, we, so we were the first community interest company in Nova Scotia. We were the first B-Core in Atlantic Canada, and one of the first handful in Canada. We were B-Core selected us as one of the uh, best for the world in 2018. We've always been able to model behavior that on the social side was exemplary. I mean, we, we, we work hard at things like our supply chain is fully integrated into uh, local and equity seeking. And, and we did that a long time ago. Like our staff, we've been working on a four-day work week for the past two years. We gave everybody raises. We just like in the first three months of COVID, we, we went through, we figured out what we we're going to do. We adjust the pre-grids for everybody. We had a study done. So we had time to do those things. We adjusted payrolls. Everybody got a raise. And then we switched to a four-day work. Week. We, it was important to us to be progressive. We were one of the first companies in Nova Scotia to adopt the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives living wage. Right. So there were people in my place, you know, six, seven years, who got $10,000 raises. Wow. We didn't think we'd survive, but at a point in time, every person in the business made more money than me and Andy. It's very impressive. It was the steady succession of little surprises. It wasn't as though it wasn't strategic. In, it, it was more like you're presented with what is an obviously decent thing to do, living wage being a thing. So in Halifax at that time, the living wage was, I think, 19 bucks an hour, like mm. somewhere in there. and and some of my guys were making 14 bucks or 15 bucks an hour. So we went, well, we can't be who we claim to be. We can't set the example we want to set if we don't live up to our own right. ideals. So if we can't survive doing this, well, then we can't survive doing this. So we just did it, and uh, and you know crossed our fingers
0: a lot. You definitely were at the forefront a lot of uh-huh. those, um, you know, innovative changes in terms of B Corp and and and
1: community interest company community interest it's a hype company <laughs>
0: yeah model um which you don't hear that much about but i have you know i've 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 read about it but i i'm wondering how po- anyway we can get onto a whole it's, long it's not for everybody it, right it's right. It's, like, it's like olives it's an acquired taste <laughs> <laughs> and i like that okay so um how long have you been with uh common good solutions
1: so the company and i launched in march of 2012 2012 okay
0: and over those years, and, and even if you want to look back further, I mean, I know this, you can go back as far as you want. I'm just wondering about the evolution of, of challenges and needs in the communities that you're serving. Do you think that the, the person taking your place right now will have greater challenges? Uh, how would you describe the landscape today as compared to then?
1: I'm, I'm I'm optimistic, really. Yeah. Uh, there's a growing, I mean, I, th- I think it's a broad awareness. Truly, a broad awareness. The status quo is not a viable option. One of the things we did a few years ago is we made we shot a documentary hmm. called The Social Shift, and um, quite a, surprisingly, a successful movie. We interviewed a counselor in Vancouver, and uh, I I've been jealous of her ever since she made this quote. But she said, "The twin stalkers of death on the planet are poverty and climate change." And I've and I've I've not been able to get that out of my mind hmm. as a succinct, direct. There was nothing left to say about it. And so I don't think there are many people who are unaware of of those two facts. And with missing and murdered Indigenous women and children, with Black Lives Matter, with the horrible tragedies we've seen unfold over the past few years, you know, with equity-seeking groups in, in North America and across the globe, for that matter, everybody's aware that change has to happen. And so I'm optimistic that people are, I mean, I met with the Halifax Chamber of Commerce, did a presentation with them earlier this week about procurement and the notion that procurement could solve a whole lot of the problems we have around equity and poverty, and that we have to begin to invest in those changes. And, and that used to be an impossible sale just to get on that. I wouldn't even get invited right. to those conversations. And now and now they're, <clears throat> I mean, I think we're going to strike a committee and we're going to start to work with the ministers and the, in, the, in the government and maybe the mayor, and we're going to start to work on ways to build a procurement policy that serves the greatest needs. And because I of the mind that's mostly enough money in the system, we're just not directing it in ways that are most effective for those who most will benefit.
0: Right. Um, so I'm up. I think we're going to win. So really, okay, that's a strong statement. Um, and I hope you're right. And oh
1: God, I hope so too. I have I grandchildren. Know.
0: Seriously. So and, and and let's bring in the topic of, of social innovation, social finance into this conversation. I know that you were asked or Common Good Solutions was asked how uh, to develop to help develop recommendations for the government's social innovation and social finance strategy. Um, so let's look at that for a second. How do you feel that both, you know, whether social innovation, social finance, but should they be playing a, a larger role in meeting societal challenges, or do you feel we're using them already effectively? And and how did your, and then I'm going to, the second part of the question is your recommendations and how did that work? Are you happy with where the government has taken it? So, Big questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, well, <clears throat> you know, we were two years, there was 14 of us, 15 of us, I think at the end, there's two years of regular in-person meetings that ended just before COVID, where we made a whole lot of, well, ended in the fall before, of the fall of 19. We made a. Uh, uh, we had tons of conversations. We they brought in deputies from all the government departments. We brought in experts and specialists from all over the place. It was it was a terrible job for anybody who's never been involved in making policy. Making policy is like making sausage. No one should see how it's done.
0: <laughs> um, yeah,
1: it's hard. And 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 these were people all of whom were well-intended and wanted to make change. And so the things I would say about it were that they were all well intended. Even if I disagreed with it in retrospect, right. I wasn't so sure about that at the time sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and vice versa, I'm sure, but but everybody had the intent of creating an ecosystem that would be better and more supportive for businesses looking to create impact. Um, I think that the federal government got waylaid. What was that damn thing? Oh, right. COVID. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, in fairness, to the Government of Canada, they've done some work around getting people ready for investment, but they haven't released the funds. Although they've renewed their commitment to, to releasing the funds, right? Uh, uh, the investment funds. So those investment funds are intended to leverage private investment. So I think, I think the Government of Canada deserves, and in particular, the Department of Employment, and Social Development. Uh, and for those of my my two friends that I have who might be listening to this, I hope you don't fall over as I say this. But I, honest to God was impressed with the work that the government did on this. Yeah, it was it was it was impressive and, and I think that they're still making an honest effort to get it right. It's a big challenge and the challenge was impacted because over those 2 years, look at the changes that have happened since spring of 2020. Yeah. You know, we've yeah. had the growing realization of all those unmarked graves and 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 we've had black lives matter and the murder of black men and 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 women across North America. We, it's, it's been, there's been very grim times. We have people living on the streets. We have all kinds of things that have percolated to the, to the upper levels of everyone's consciousness where they might not to say that they weren't existing before. Cause obviously they were, but for most people, they weren't seeing them. They were caught up in their nice lives. And so, but I think there's an awareness now. It's kind of like you can ignore a problem that you don't really know about, but it's hard to ignore a problem that's been put in front of your face. Yeah. And I think and hope that that's going to change. So I think the government of Canada have been refocusing some of the recommendations that we made to include work around equity-seeking groups and uh, uh, certainly First Nations, Indigenous, Inuit, and Métis, and that that's all going to be for the better. I don't know that they could do more. I think they need to get this piece done and out on the street and working and then assess from there. I think that's probably the strategy.
0: And for those who don't know, I, I mean, you know, we're not going to get into a whole explanation of what it's all about right now because we could spend hours on it but to say you know where it's at in terms of they need to get this piece done could you specify what is this piece so is it just um
1: the government of canada are selecting some wholesalers who will put
0: the money the 700
1: million dollars out onto the street they're going to work through intermediaries financial intermediaries like credit unions and, and all kinds of different organizations who are, let's call them professional lenders and investors, to support organizations who are able to clearly articulate the impact and measure the value of the impact that they're trying to create. And, um, you know, I'm hopeful. And that leads me to the conversation about a national program versus yeah. a pan-Canadian program. One of the things, I'm a pretty strong advocate for the Atlantic region. Um, I don't think we've always gotten a fair shake in Canada from a policy perspective. Mm-hmm. Because we're sort of like an afterthought at best. And uh, for the long, longest time, we're the butt of an awful lot of good jokes, some of which I've told myself. But, um, <laughs> but nonetheless, we're here. There are 2.3 million people here. And one of the challenges of being a very large country with a relatively small population is building a one-size-fits-all anything is a challenge. And ex- a good example would be RRSPs. Almost all of that money goes into mutual funds. Right all of that money is invested in centralized central canada, canadian markets do you know how much nova scotia just nova scotia invests 600 million dollars a year in rsp's how much do you suppose is reinvested back in nova scotia 2% 12 million dollars wow so so the so it's not that rsp's are a bad thing they're a good thing mm. and and you know i probably won't have to eat cat food as i retire because i've got a couple but was it a good thing for atlantic canada it was a bad thing for atlantic canada our single most lucrative export is cash I mean, you take $600 million out of a 1 million person economy on an annual basis, and do you think that has impact? Hmm. It's like stealing the piggy bank every year. Right. And then being surprised you get no money. That's a problem with an an unintended consequence with a national program. Hmm. We could have a social finance program that was pan-Canadian with the same federal rules that could be applied differently in Atlantic Canada because the needs of someone in Inverness or Grand Falls, Newfoundland might not be the same as somebody in Red Deer or Edmonton.
0: Interesting. Okay. And,
1: and yeah. so why can't we make that work? I, I would suggest that that's a thing that we need as a nation to think about a little bit more.
0: Have you been promoting that idea? i thought like, has there been, I, I'm, you know, wondering, is that what you're going to be sort of focusing your energy on next now that you're stepping down from, or you step down from this position?
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, the two things I'm going to work on are, expanding community-based procurement as an option in the region through municipalities, tribal councils, and the provinces, all four provinces, to try to get them to use the money we've got more strategically mm-hmm. to create the kind of social outcomes that we need to have healthy, happy, and prosperous communities.
0: And what was the, and second? the other thing
1: is going to be finance. So uh, Atlantic Canada has smaller amounts of philanthropic money available than, say, the rest of the country. An example would be Nova Scotia has a million people and Edmonton has roughly a million people. Community Foundation Edmonton has about $600 million or $500 million in their endowment fund. And Nova Scotia has $8 million in their endowment fund. So, and in Ontario with the Trillium Foundation and, you know, some of the big foundations in, in Quebec, like Desjardins and some of those guys, they have they have lots of money to invest. But they tend to be centralized in the larger, more prosperous centers. That leaves us at a disadvantage. So we need to find other ways to raise capital. And we're, and we're working on it. It's our problem. We have to deal with it.
0: So it seems like you're going to be busy though.
1: I'm going to be doing the jobs I like as opposed to one of the things about running a business is not all the work is your favorite part right. of the work.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. You, I'm telling you this like you don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know it well, <laughs> yes. but so that's great. So you'll be focusing on the things that you, you enjoy most. You feel like you really can add um, Yeah. Yeah. value to. And so, and, and, and just to, to finish off that, that point about social finance. So is that going to be a big focus of where you feel, um, the challenges will be best met and and that philanthropic challenge and other challenges through um, a sort of a push for social financial social finance type solutions. Is that, I I think
1: it's, I think capital is a game changer Mm -hmm. when you're trying to create change. And um, I was going to nod and I figured that'd go well on the podcast.
0: (laughs) I do that all uh, the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Long awkward silences as Dave nods. Um, No. So, so, so it is, it is, one of the areas where I think we can do some good over a couple of years. And uh, I just have been very interested in it for a while and not able to get focus enough time on it because right. it really does take a little bit of time to get it started.
0: For sure, for sure. Um, wonderful, and we will continue to watch you um, and your work. And I, if we have just one minute left though, I was wondering if you can just offer wonderful words of wisdom for social entrepreneurs. Um, anything that you would think sort of lessons learned you've learned that maybe you'd like to impart to other, whether prospective social entrepreneurs or current social entrepreneurs?
1: You know, that's, it's a hard one. And, and there's, yeah. there's a, a, I think we just need to do better. All, I mean, all of us vote for what's important three times a day. You know, every time we eat a meal, we're making decisions about what's important, you know? If it's Pop-Tarts, I'm not, I'm not judging, I like Pop-Tarts actually, but, but the point is, it's not it's not the best choice we can make for our communities. For our health and for the quality of life we we hope for, and uh, and so it's a small example for sure. But you know, we we talk about things we all want. But for for me, with four grandchildren, most people have children, and and they deserve to have a better world. And we need to find ways to keep that front and center in our minds. So I'm hopeful because of people like Chelsea McNeil, who's our new president at Comic Solutions, mm-hmm. and, and other people, lots of other people like her, they're going to change the ecosystem. There's a flood of new ways of being and doing that they're going to show us. And and, and we need to give people like Chelsea and, and and Chelsea lots of time and support as they continue to move the needle on, on the work that has to happen. I mean, I don't think it's to overstate it when you say to survive as a species.
0: Eloquently, beautifully said. That's great. Is there anything else you wanted to say that I'd give you a chance to say? I mean, I think our sector improves
1: one executive director retirement at a time. I think that there's space and interest from younger people with more progressive ideas, with broader sort of perspectives on who can play in this field. I think, does anybody reasonably believe that the nonprofit and charitable sector will solve poverty or climate change? No. No.
0: I don't think anybody. Oh, that's me shaking my head. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. So, no,
1: those are like, it's contagious. So what I think is until we can genuinely engage the business community in better behavior, and and I'm saying that until we show them the benefit in behaving differently, until the business community buys into the fact that their improved behavior is good for their business and good for their damn children, and their grandchildren, we're in trouble. So a lot of our work has to be focused there. And again, as those old farts get out of their CEO and director chairs in their businesses, and they're replaced by their sons and daughters and granddaughters, they're, I don't think, going to make some of those mistakes. I hope.
0: Thank you for listening to In the Business of Change. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear other conversations with inspired social entrepreneurs and change makers working on challenges in their communities and across the globe. I'm your host, Lisa Bierthal.